Welcome to the Unmade Podcast, looking at media and marketing from an Australian perspective. I'm Tim Burrows. Recently, I published my first book, Media Unmade. It quickly became an Amazon bestseller. It's the story of Australian media's most disruptive decade. It's published by Hardy Grant, and you can buy it at all good bookshops and online. In the coming weeks, I'll be sharing the full audio edition of the book here on the Unmade podcast. Coming up is the next chapter. Now remember, only Unmade's paying subscribers get to hear every chapter. If you haven't already, you can sign up at unmade.media. As well as supporting my work as an independent journalist, you'll receive exclusive industry analysis in both written and podcast form. And once you sign up, you'll still be able to get our paid podcasts inside the app of your choice. It only takes a couple of clicks. Now, on with the book. Chapter 5. Thrupple Trouble on Team Australia. In which Mark Scott's ABC takes a lead in the digital sphere, Labour media reforms go unlegislated, and Tony Abbott promises not to cut ABC funding, promptly does so, then denies doing so. It is the saddest day in the ABC's history. The night before, managing director Mark Scott had been out for dinner in Sydney with Fiona Stanley and James Spiegelman. Professor Stanley, an acclaimed epidemiologist and medical researcher, had been appointed to the ABC board just a few weeks before. Spiegelman had just retired as Chief Justice of the New South Wales Supreme Court. In the coming months, he would be confirmed by Prime Minister Julia Gillard as the ABC's next chairman. During that dinner on Thursday the 18th of August 2011, Scott had taken a call from the ABC's Director of News, Kate Tawney. An ABC helicopter with three staff on board had gone missing at Lake Eyre in South Australia. Scott had headed back to his office on the 14th floor of the ABC's headquarters on Harris Street in Ultimo and stayed up all night waiting for news. Friday is a day of grief and loss. Confirmation comes through that the chopper crashed. On board were reporter Paul Lockyer, cameraman John Bean and pilot Gary Tysurst. The three are part of the fabric and family of the ABC. The helicopter had taken off into the moonless night at 7pm after a day filming the flooding lake for a documentary. It crashed and burned soon after. All three are dead. Lockyer had excelled at telling rural stories. He covered the aftermath of Cyclone Yazzie and had been the only reporter on the ground in Grantham for the Queensland floods a few months earlier. Bean was a veteran of bush reporting and was married to ABC landline reporter Pip Courtney and Tysurst had become the ABC's first full-time pilot when he joined the organisation in 1980. They were engaged in the sort of work that sums up the difference between the ABC and its commercial peers. Putting resources into telling rural stories beyond the capital cities. It's the type of understated public interest journalism 
that wouldn't be done half as well without the ABC. Nobody within the organisation is unaffected by the tragedy. Throughout the day, Scott, who believes his job as managing director is to be the calmest person in the room whenever there's a crisis, leads the staff as they begin to grieve for three of their own. Leading the ABC is not like running most other media organisations. The managing director is also the editor-in-chief. Scott makes a point this night to be in the ABC newsroom with his journalists to watch the 7pm news go to air. The bulletin will contain a tribute to the trio. But the day's cruelties are not yet over. The ABC's Director of Innovation, Ian Carroll, the man who's been helping Scott drive through his programme of digital change, has spent the past year being treated for pancreatic cancer. While Scott is in the newsroom, word reaches in that Carroll, much loved within the ABC, has passed away. Carroll, married to ABC presenter Geraldine Doog, had contributed as much to the DNA of the modern ABC as anyone. He'd helped establish the organisation's current affairs staples, Late Line and the 7.30 report. He'd transformed how the ABC covered elections and had hired data analyst Anthony Green. Until becoming Director of Innovation, Carroll had run the ABC's international broadcasting service, Australia Network. At the end of this worst day, words finally fail Scott. Just a fortnight before, he'd celebrated Carol's three-decade career with the ABC, asking at the event, is there anyone in this country who has thought more about what the news is and what the news should be, how the news should be packaged and how the news should be delivered than Ian? Tonight, Scott is less eloquent. He's unable to do more than simply share the news with the staff. He cannot find the right words to propose a toast or pay tribute. For a moment, it's too much. As the staff stand in silence, thinking about the day they've just been through, the ABC's news theme, Majestic Fanfare, begins to play. It's seven o'clock. Five years earlier, The Leopard... When the ABC board chose Mark Scott for an initial five-year term, which was later extended to a full decade, implicit in the role was leading the organisation into a future not yet written. There were to be two major threads to the story of Scott's tenure. The first had been a constant throughout the history of the public service broadcaster to navigate the politicised funding process while safeguarding the independence of the ABC's journalism. The other was something that none of Scott's predecessors had faced, leading the transition from an analogue past to a digital future. When it comes to its finances, the fortunes of the ABC are defined by two different cycles. First, the triennial funding system, which sets out how much public money the organisation will receive across each three-year period. But a second cycle has had even greater impact. That's defined by which political party is in power. Historically, the ABC has fared better under Labour governments than it has under the coalition. Inevitably, politics have always impinged upon the realities of running the ABC. 
that's not least because every activity of the ABC was and is jealously watched by commercial peers, particularly Rupert Murdoch's News Corp, which any government wanted to keep on side. It's always been a dysfunctional three-way relationship between ABC, government and News Corp. The thruple from hell. Scott had been something of a surprise to lead the organisation when he won his first term in 2006. He had no experience working in television or radio. He'd been a teacher before moving into journalism with Fairfax's Sydney Morning Herald, eventually becoming the company's editorial director. He may have lacked broadcast experience, but he was better equipped than many to navigate the political element of the ABC role. After teaching, Scott had worked inside the New South Wales government as a political advisor on education under Liberal Premier Nick Grenier. This would give him invaluable insights into what motivates politicians and how decisions are really made. Perhaps just as importantly, Scott had also developed an interest in organisational management. But the other part of the story better reflected a character trait. As well as management structures, Scott was fascinated by the new. This set him up well for the technological upheaval that was to come. The ABC had a reputation for being a culture where achieving change was difficult. Staff were set in their ways and fiefdoms were everywhere. Kim Williams, who had led the ABC's failed attempts to get into subscription television a decade before Scott's arrival, would later write of the organisation. The ABC was an enormously harsh and difficult place at which to work. It was almost incapable of considering its audience as it was so mired in internal factions, divisions and industrial rigidities of the most arcane kind. ABC board director Stephen Scala would later tell the Australian Financial Review, We needed a chief executive who was sophisticated in editorial content and who also had very strong people management skills. We recognised it was going to be a period of great change at the ABC because of the emergence of digital technologies. Arriving in 2006, Scott had evangelised to staff the case for change. He liked to quote a line from the novel The Leopard, Giuseppe Tomasi di Lampedusa's story of 19th century Sicilian life. If we want things to stay as they are, things will have to change. The ABC that Scott inherited was built around old models of public service broadcasting. Like a newspaper, the organisation's news output, particularly in television, built to a single 7pm crescendo, rather than smoothly outputting news across the day. The audience, however, was beginning to buy smartphones and starting to expect content at the time of their choosing. Scott was also determined to make the most of the biggest advantage he had over his commercial peers. The value of different types of commercial audiences have never been equal. Analogue advertising dollars were worth digital cents. A big audience watching The Block at 7pm would be lucrative for nine, but the same audience watching a video on 9MSN would be worth far less. Advertisers were willing to pay more to be on TV than they were for their ads to be online. Similarly, a newspaper reader buying the print edition was worth far more to the publisher than the same person looking at its website. 
As a result, the commercial players were disincentivized to chase the digital opportunity. Indeed, the networks were ignoring the lesson of the leopard. They were acting like the longer they could avoid change, the more things would stay the same. The ABC was in a different boat. Funded by public money, it could follow its audience wherever it went. With the arrival of smartphones and tablets, audience habits were about to change completely. The ABC all of a sudden found itself at an advantage because we could reach people in an agnostic way, recalls Scott, meaning that TV, radio, smartphones and tablets were all equivalent in its eyes. Scott had been fortunate in the timing of his arrival. Just before he started, Liberal Prime Minister John Howard and Treasurer Peter Costello had been unexpectedly generous to the ABC in the form of a funding boost in the May 2006 budget. Funding for its core services would rise from $530.8 million in 2006 to 2007 to $543.5 million in 2007 to 2008 and $550 million in 2008 to 2009. On top of that, the government had found another $88.2 million to pay for more regional and local programming, to commission more drama and to buy new equipment. In his definitive book on the organisation, Who's ABC?, author Ken Inglis had asked outgoing chairman Donald MacDonald why there had been such generosity from Howard's government, which had previously appeared to believe that the ABC was bloated. MacDonald's theory was that the government had been at last persuaded to get a monkey off its back, namely the unwarranted but persistent accusation that it was out to destroy the ABC. Scott would soon find new ways of asking for money that did not involve approaching the government with begging bowl outstretched. My feeling in dealing with government was to not go in there crying poor. Everybody cries poor, he says. The government wants solutions to problems they have. So I would explain how the ABC could provide a solution. A credible combo of managing director and chairman of the board was also important in getting results in Canberra. Much like in business, the role of the ABC board is to take overall responsibility for the management of the organisation while delegating the day-to-day running to the managing director. The board also has the power to hire and in exceptional circumstances, fire the MD. Scott crossed over with three ABC chairmen. When he started in July 2006, Donald MacDonald, who had come up within the arts world, was in the final six months of his decade-long tenure, which had coincided with John Howard's Liberal government. Former businessman Morris Newman did a five-year stint as chair from 2007 to 2012, which would cover the years of Labour government under Kevin Rudd, Julia Gillard, and then Rudd again. And former judge James Spiegelman would become chairman in April 2012, a year before Tony Abbott regained power for the coalition. Newman and Scott had worked particularly well together when asking the Labour government for money. I've been told by many sources that Newman and Scott were an impressive double act, particularly in the corridors of power in Canberra. Former ABC Media Watch presenter Jonathan Holmes would later write in his book, On Auntie. As one source put it, Newman was a wonderful networker and Scott was a champion schmoozer. 
Historically, those arguments for investment have tended to fall upon more sympathetic ears when they belong to Labour communications ministers and PMs rather than their coalition counterparts. For instance, Scott won more money for his organisation in 2010 by persuading Labour communications minister Stephen Conroy that the ABC could help drive take-up for the national broadband network by investing in the digital skills of regional and rural communities through the ABC Open project. It built on $15.3 million in extra funding the government had already handed over for the ABC's regional hubs initiative to buy equipment and train staff outside the big cities. An even bigger example was the switchover from analogue to digital broadcasting of the TV signal. The era of smartphones made telecommunications companies hungry for more spectrum to offer 4G data services over the airwaves. The TV switchover would free up spectrum that the government could then auction to the telcos in what it was calling the digital dividend. But the switch was stalling. Without new digital TV content, there was little reason for the public to buy set-top boxes just to get digital versions of existing channels on their old televisions or to purchase more expensive digital-ready TVs. It would have been a political impossibility to let the public's screens go blank before everyone was ready. But until enough members of the public had made the switch, the government wouldn't be able to get its digital dividend. They had already banked the money. I argued that a powerful way to get people to move across was to have great content delivered through digital by providing an ABC children's channel, says Scott. It was actually a second run, nearly a decade before the ABC had briefly offered two digital channels for children, Fly TV and ABC Kids, for about 18 months before pulling the plug in May 2003 when it failed to win the government funding it had been expecting. This time round, with digital take-up stalled, the government found the funds for the new kids channel. When the Spectrum was finally auctioned in 2013, the digital dividend was worth $1.96 billion to the government. Telstra laid out $1.3 billion, Optus $650 million, and TPG $14 million. The $136 million the government had given the ABC in 2009 to pay for ABC Kids must have seemed like a bargain. However, Scott's other big plan for a digital channel, ABC News 24, had to be funded by making savings within the ABC's existing production budget. Launched in July 2010, it was Australia's first free-to-air news channel. News 24 would alter public expectations of the ABC as a news service. People underestimate just what a change News 24 meant to the way we do television news, Scott would later say in a video interview with Mumbrella. Nearly all our television was based around the 7 o'clock bulletin. So a news event happened at 11 o'clock in the morning and we had eight hours to get it right. Everything was crafted and tapered for that one moment. Now our audience has an expectation. They're not going to wait until seven o'clock. They want the very best, the very latest, up to the minute. We have responsibilities to our audiences that run through the day. We have responsibilities to get information to them on radio, on television, online and mobile. The launch of News 24 also put the ABC on a collision course with one of its biggest critics, Rupert Murdoch's News Corp. 
The company was a part owner of Australian News Channel, which owned 24-hour news channel Sky News Australia, broadcast to Foxtel and Ozstar subscribers. In fact, News Corp's stake in Sky News Australia was small at that stage. Seven owned a third, nine owned a third, and the final third was owned by British Sky Broadcasting, which ran Sky News UK. In turn, News Corp owned 39.1% of B-Sky-B. Effectively, News Corp's stake was just 13% of Sky News Australia. Sky News had been launched by Rupert Murdoch in the UK in 1989. Regardless of technicalities, spiritually, Sky News Australia was part of the family. News Corp's antagonism to public service broadcasting, as a philosophy and as a challenge to its business model, had a long history. In the 1930s, Keith Murdoch, Rupert Murdoch's father, had lobbied to stop the ABC from gathering its own news, rather than taking its bulletins from the newspaper-owned agency, Australian Associated Press. And Rupert Murdoch had questioned the justification for a publicly funded BBC in the UK and ABC in Australia for most of his career. His son James giving the keynote McTaggart lecture at the Edinburgh International TV Festival in 2009, had gone further, claiming, the only reliable, durable and perpetual guarantor of independence is profit. Rupert Murdoch was not necessarily opposed to public service broadcasting altogether, but argued the ABC should be limited to filling in gaps left by the commercial market. The ABC's digital ambitions would raise the conflict to a new level. Its online news operations would challenge the viability of putting paywalls on News Corp's newspapers. Why pay for news when you can get it for free? And ABC News 24 put tanks on the lawn of Sky News. Scott would later write in his 2019 book, On Us, Sky News and its most vocal shareholder, News Corp, were loudly opposed to the creation of News 24. Australia already had a news channel, they argued. Sky News, available on Foxtel. My argument was that if Australia were to have 20 free-to-air television channels, at least one should be a television news channel available anywhere in the country. Sky simply could not be seen in most homes because most people were unwilling to keep paying at least $50 a month for a Foxtel subscription. The heat between the ABC and News Corp was also raised by politics, with the Labour government's involvement in the tender for the Australia network contract held by the ABC turning into a fiasco. Launched by the ABC in 1993 as Australia Television International and funded by a separate government grant from the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, DFAT, the service aired across Southeast Asia. It was promoted to Labour Prime Minister Paul Keating as soft diplomacy, sharing Australia's cultural values with the world. With Asia in general, and China in particular, becoming important trading partners, friends, or, worse, potential adversaries, it would be increasingly important to promote understanding of Australia. After funding cuts led to the ABC dropping out for a while, Seven had held the contract from 1998 to 2002, before the ABC came back into play with a rebranded ABC Asia Pacific, containing a smorgasbord of content from 
7, 9, 10, and even for a while, Sky News. It may have been the only channel in the world where 7's home and away, and 10's neighbours were on the same network. The ABC had hung on to the DFAT contract in the 2005 tender, with yet another rebrand to Australian Network. But when the tender came up again in 2010, Sky News chased for the $220 million contract. The process became a political mess, made all the murkier for mixed signals coming from the Labour cabinet. The tender process had been launched while Kevin Rudd was Prime Minister, shortly before he was rolled by his deputy Julia Gillard. And Rudd remained in the process in his downgraded role as Foreign Minister. Some of the more conspiracy-minded wondered whether Rudd wanted the process to result in a win for Sky News, perhaps to earn him favour from News Corp. Although they would later fall out, Rudd had been cultivating his back-channel relationships with News Corp editors, even hosting boozy nights at Kirribilli House for the staff of the Daily Telegraph. Clauses in the tender process made it more difficult for the ABC because DFAT would have ultimate editorial control. The initial recommendation from the Tender Evaluation Board was to give the contract to Sky News, presumably because the ABC had not agreed to give up editorial control, and perhaps on cost grounds too. The reasons were never publicly revealed. Given that a key purpose of the channel was soft diplomacy, the Murdoch-aligned Sky News might have been unpalatable for DFAT, thanks to News Corp's recent history in China. News Corporation had created waves with the Chinese authorities with its ultimately abandoned attempt to establish its Star TV network in China during the previous decade. There was also growing antipathy towards News Corp for many within the Labour cabinet. Although several of News Corp's papers had backed Labour in the 2007 Election Day editorials, most of their coverage had now turned against the party. So Gillard's cabinet decided to restart the process rather than hand $220 million to a News Corp-aligned organisation. Inconveniently, Sky News won the recommendation for the second tender too, with the process dragging on through much of 2011. Communications Minister Stephen Conroy, who'd been subject to increasingly hostile News Corp coverage over his rollout of the MBM, intervened in November, calling off the process and giving the contract to the ABC on a permanent basis. Later, the government will be forced to compensate a furious Sky News for around $2 million. Podcast or perish? It wasn't just in digital broadcasting that the ABC was challenging its commercial rivals. ABC iView became the country's first major free streaming service. Initially, it had allowed viewers to download video of certain shows in a glorified version of podcasting, or vodcasting, as the ABC referred to it. 18 million downloads of the 20 shows it made available suggested the demand was there. Then iView launched a streaming service in July 2008. The ABC's ambitions for the service were clear from the beginning. The television revolution has begun, was how the press release announced the service. ABC iView is a new way to watch TV. No longer tied to the television set, Australians now have access to a quality, high-resolution, full-screen viewing experience on their computer. At the click of a mouse... 
Viewers can choose what to watch, when to watch and where to watch ABC content, the announcement continued. It quoted the ABC's director of television, Kim Dalton. The way Australians watch television is changing. People want to enjoy their favourite shows at a time and place convenient to them. The enormous success ABC TV has had in providing our content online through vodcasting clearly shows that Australians love to watch television that way. The technical explanation in the press release sounds quaint now, but captures the hurdles that ABC Innovation Director Ian Carroll and his team had needed to overcome. Developed in-house by ABC Innovation, ABC iView is a streaming video service which provides full-screen, high-resolution video at a quality above that found on most international television content sites, or sites like YouTube. To achieve this quality, ABC iView has been designed to run on computers with a high-speed broadband connection, such as ADSL2. ABC iView has its own inbuilt video player, which means people don't need to download any additional software to watch video. Users can watch the five channels or create their own by selecting individual programs and adding them to a playlist. And Carol promised, I see this as just the first of many new and different relationships the ABC will be forming with all Australians. iView grew the following year with more content and a redesigned site. I could see the opportunity for us to launch iView and get an early market-leading position, recalls Scott. That caused the ABC to go from being perceived as one of the least to one of the most innovative media organisations. That was how to reinvent Auntie to me, to be more relevant, more engaging, more contemporary. Scott had plenty to work with in chasing innovation. As early as 2004, a working group inside the ABC had created a strategy paper entitled Podcast or Perish. At this stage, podcasting was fiddly to produce and a low-reach niche. That changed in 2005 when Apple introduced a podcasting function into its iTunes software. At the time, iTunes was for Apple iPods and computers only. The iPhone and the rise of smartphones was still two years away. ABC Online had been around for even longer. It launched way back in August 1995, when only one Australian home in five had a computer. Scott prioritised investments into these new ways of reaching ABC audiences. Every ABC radio programme would become available as a podcast. It's amazing to think how little time it's been since. If you didn't tune in when a programme went out on the radio, it was gone, recalls Scott. Social media took off. Initially, Facebook looked like the platform of the personal while Twitter was where users shared thoughts and links with the world in real time. The ABC was fast to embrace Twitter. In April 2010, its political panel show, Q&A, began to put audience tweets on screen in real time. The show was one of the first in the world to do so. It used live moderation technology, created specifically for the broadcaster by the brilliant technologist Leslie Nasser, who would die just six years later in a hit-and-run road accident in the US. The growth of the Q&A hashtag saw the programme join Sunday morning show Insiders as a key appointment within the weekly political agenda. Without the need to monetize its content, the ABC was 
soon on multiple platforms, long before its commercial rivals. In December 2012, ABC News 24 started streaming live on YouTube, Facebook and Twitter. And the Labour government found more new money for the ABC in 2013, with a one-off boost of $10 million to create a fact-checking unit for the news operation, put more video links into regional Australia and hire more specialist reporters. It was as good as it was going to get. Kick this mob out. Beyond spectrum policy and soft diplomacy, the Labour government was belatedly beginning to consider Australia's out-of-date media regulations, which had not been significantly updated since 1992. The government commissioned two media policy inquiries, which crossed over each other. The Convergence Review was called first in late 2010. Chaired by former IBM boss Glenn Borum, the Convergence Review was tasked with examining the questions of media ownership, content standards and promoting locally produced media content. And while the Convergence Review was still running, news of the phone hacking scandal in the UK broke. The Australian Greens, junior coalition partner to Labour, agitated for an inquiry into the press in Australia. They were pushing against an open door, as the positive momentum of Rudd's Kevin 07 sweep into power had faded, so had Labour's relationships with News Limited. By July 2011, Conroy went on to ABC Radio National and claimed that the Daily Telegraph in Sydney was mounting a campaign against Labour of regime change, a phrase previously associated with the US overthrow of Saddam Hussein in Iraq. There had been no credible suggestions that News Limited had indulged in similar practices to the UK phone hacking in Australia, and the company's local tabloids hadn't been publishing the sort of exclusives that would have raised eyebrows. But nonetheless, it looked like a press inquiry of which News Limited would be the unofficial focus. The independent media inquiry, called in September 2011, was run by former judge Ray Finkelstein and assisted by University of Canberra's Matthew Ricketson, previously a journalist at The Age. In particular, it would examine the question of whether media self-regulation was working and propose alternatives. There was much that was worth considering. The Australian Communications and Media Authority regulated the TV and radio industry. In theory, ACMA could cancel the licences of particularly badly behaved broadcasters, not that it ever did. The print media, and by extension their online output, was regulated by the Australian Press Council. The APC was a voluntary newspaper industry body, set up in 1976 and funded by the newspapers themselves. News Limited and Fairfax Media picked up most of the tab. Representatives included staff from the media companies that funded it, along with public members. Members of the public, unhappy about how they'd been treated in newspaper coverage, were able to complain to the APC if they were dissatisfied with how the paper had handled their complaint. The APC would investigate and rule on whether the complaint was upheld according to its standards of practice. These standards covered principles of fairness, accuracy, privacy and transparency. After the APC had completed its investigation, the newspaper would be obliged to publish the ruling somewhere within its pages. And that was it. The APC had no power to fine or otherwise sanction those it ruled against. 
Much like ACMA, it was a toothless tiger. It was an imperfect system, just as Winston Churchill had said democracy was the worst form of government, except for all those other forms that have been tried, the APC had emerged as the least bad available form of self-regulation. The risk of a government-regulated or even government-funded watchdog was that it would impinge upon the principles of press freedom. For an inquiry of its type, Finkelstein's team moved fast. The inquiry reported back ahead of the Convergence Review, which had kicked off first. Finkelstein's report was delivered to Conroy in February 2012, less than six months after being commissioned. It considered 132 written submissions and heard from 41 people and organisations over eight days of public hearings. The 468-page report offered a comprehensive overview of the economic issues facing the mainstream media along with the funding challenges faced by the APC. There was little to disagree with in the diagnosis. Indeed, it was an excellent rear-view mirror examination of the history of the media in Australia and around the world. But when it came to the report's forward-looking recommendations for what to do about press regulation, there was far less rigour. Finkelstein proposed the creation of a new government-funded regulatory body, the News Media Council, It would cover newspapers online and broadcast. It would be run independently of government, but the participation of the media organisations would be obligatory. This may be termed enforced self-regulation, conceded Finkelstein. The News Media Council would not have the power to fine miscreants, but it would be able to order publication of corrections or even for an article to be removed from the online archive. It would also be able to order outlets to publish a reply from a complainant. It wanted the rulings to be court enforceable. It recommended any failure to comply with the court order should be a contempt of court and punishable in the usual way. This would be both a deterrent to breaching standards and, in the event of a complaint being made, will act as an incentive for media outlets to resolve the complaint through discussion. Contempt of court is, of course, punishable by imprisonment. There was a huge furore. The plan for the News Media Council's powers was controversial enough, but the inquiry tripped over its own shoelaces when it came to defining which outlets would be covered. It proposed, if a publisher distributes more than 3,000 copies of print per issue, or a news internet site has a minimum of 15,000 hits per annum, it should be subject to the jurisdiction of the News Media Council but not otherwise. These numbers are arbitrary, but a line must be drawn somewhere. The use of the word hits revealed a naivety about the digital ecosystem. It was a term that had already fallen out of use. Downloading a single web page requires several files, with each call to the server a separate hit. But even assuming the inquiry meant page views rather than hits, 15,000 a year was tiny. It amounted to 41 pages per day. Just about every blogger in the country would have been included. For anyone involved in digital publishing, it was obvious this was not a fully thought-through recommendation. For one thing, there would be no way for a regulator to tell which sites had passed that threshold of 15,000 page views per year. 
Similarly impractical was the idea from Finkelstein that every complaint should be resolved within 48 hours. The inquiry wrote, There should be a requirement that the media outlet concerned has two days to respond to a complaint, and the panel then has a further two days to resolve the complaint and make a decision. What would happen if the journalist who had written a complaint about story happened to be on a day off? Would they be expected to rush back to work to answer any questions every time there was a complaint? Or what if they were covering another big breaking story? Would they be expected to drop it to address the complaint instead? The recommendations for the News Media Council had the air of not having been sense-checked with anyone who had an idea about the digital publishing world. Shadow Communications Minister Malcolm Turnbull immediately distanced himself from Finkelstein's proposals, writing on his blog, which would itself probably have had enough traffic to be covered by the proposed regulations. His recommendation to set up a new government-funded super-regulator, a news media council, with statutory powers to take over the role of the press council, the media regulation role of ACMA, and have jurisdiction over the online world, is not one which would appeal to the coalition. Believing as we do in a free press, free in particular, to hold governments to account. The recommendations would soon be joined on Conroy's desk by those from the Convergence Review. It was published on the 1st of May 2012. Aiming at the bigger end of the media, the Convergence Review proposed a major new regulatory regime for Australia's 15 largest media players. It would cover those with a turnover of more than $50 million per year. It proposed leaving digital behemoths like Google and Facebook alone on the grounds that their news content originated with newspapers in the first place. Even Google's video sharing site YouTube would not be covered because it did not contain enough Australian-created professional content. The Convergence Review proposed creating a cross-platform news standards body, which the Big 15 would be obliged to become members of, while smaller players could do so on a voluntary basis. Rob Borum did not go as far as Finkelstein in proposing that the news standards body should have court-enforced powers. He suggested the new government-funded body should be able to impose sanctions. Most significantly, the Convergence Review also proposed a simplification of the media ownership rules. A public interest test should be developed to ensure that diversity considerations are taken into account in transactions where there are changes in control of content service enterprises of national significance. This was a radical change in Australia's existing and out-of-date rules designed to preserve media diversity. The law included a rule that said there needed to be at least five different owners of TV, radio and newspapers in any given metropolitan area. In the regions, there had to be at least four. And in any of those markets, no individual owner could be in all three of TV, radio and newspapers. They were limited to two out of three. This had been introduced by the Howard government in 2007. Before then, proprietors were even more limited. As Paul Keating had put it, They could be prince of print or queen of the screen, but not both. On the television side, they were limited to owning one TV network, along with the accompanying secondary digital channels, in any given market. And they were limited to reaching a maximum of 75% of the population. 
This was one reason why Metro TV networks had affiliate arrangements with regional broadcasters who carried their shows in the bush and some capital cities. And in radio, nobody was allowed to own more than two stations in the same area. For any of Conroy's recommendations to become law, they would need to be legislated. Despite the clock ticking towards the next election, Conroy sat on the recommendations of both reports for a few months. It was perhaps a useful sword of Damocles to hang over the heads of media companies whose coverage would influence Labour's re-election chances. Conroy finally released his response to both inquiries in March 2013. He accepted the suggestion to create a public interest test to ensure diversity of media in any major media mergers or acquisitions. He would also beef up the powers of the APC. Mostly, he ignored the Finkelstein recommendations. Although the media regulation plans were less draconian than Finkelstein's proposals, News Corp's papers took the plans as an attack on press freedom and unleashed its campaigning firepower against Conroy. The Daily Telegraph featured a photograph of Conroy next to dictators, including Russia's Stalin, China's Mao Zedong, Zimbabwe's Robert Mugabe, Cuba's Fidel Castro, North Korea's Kim Jong-un, and Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. The headline barked, Conroy joins them. The aggressive move by the Telegraph under editor Paul Whitaker wasn't necessarily welcomed on the executive floor at News Corp, whose management had been quietly lobbying key politicians on the law changes. It made the company look like a bully. Despite having more than five years as communications minister, Conroy had left it too late anyway. He was overtaken by events before he could get the legislation through Parliament. On the 26th of June 2013, Rudd returned to the Prime Ministership after Gillard called a leadership spill. Little more than a month later, he called an election. Almost all of News Corp's papers barracked against Labour. The Daily Telegraph in Sydney went hardest, starting its election coverage with the front page headline, Kick This Mob Out. Towards the end of the campaign, the question of funding for public service broadcasting, including multicultural broadcaster SBS and the ABC, moved up the agenda. The night before the 7th of September election, Liberal leader Tony Abbott was pinned down during a live cross from the Penrith Football Stadium with SBS's Anton Enos. The newscaster asked Abbott, what about public broadcasters? Another soft target? Are the ABC and SBS in the firing line? In a comment that would be regularly played back in the months that followed, Abbott pledged, no cuts to education, no cuts to health, no change to pensions, no change to the GST, and no cuts to ABC or SBS. Cuts and lies. Abbott won the election. It was no surprise that he appointed Malcolm Turnbull, who'd been the party's communications spokesman in opposition, as communications minister. Turnbull was a lawyer by training, who'd been around media businesses for most of his career, including alongside Kerry Packer. He had made much of his personal fortune through his investment in early dial-up internet provider Aussie Mail, turning half a million dollars into $60 million in 1998. 
He was much better prepared than many of his predecessors or colleagues to grapple with the technological changes ahead, not least the NBN. Before the election, Abbott had said in a tongue-in-cheek party room speech, we have a strong and credible broadband policy because the man who has devised it, the man who will implement it, virtually invented the internet in this country. Thank you so much, Malcolm Turnbull. Turnbull would later reveal that Abbott's no-cuts promise had come as a shock to both himself and Treasurer-in-waiting Joe Hockey. Turnbull wrote in his autobiography, A Bigger Picture, We'd discussed undertaking a rigorous efficiency review of the ABC and making savings where we could without diminishing the quality of the services. Turnbull would also sum up the mixed feelings held within the coalition about the ABC. For many of my Liberal Party colleagues, the ABC was a nest of dangerous, mung-bean-munching, latte-sipping lefties out of touch with the world beyond their inner-city elitist conclaves. The Nationals, and some rural libs, generally had a more nuanced view. They recognised the ABC did an outstanding job in its coverage of rural and regional Australia. To them, there were good programmes, Landline, and bad ones, Q&A, the 7.30 report, pretty much everything that wasn't hosted by people wearing a Cobras. Many within the ABC were indeed anticipating that Turnbull, a centrist by conviction, would be supportive of the organisation. They'd be both surprised and disappointed. Turnbull would write in his book later, Personally, I was thoroughly pro-ABC. In an age where social media had smashed the advertising business model of the mainstream media of newspapers, television and radio, the ABC had a crucial role to play, but it needed to improve its journalism so it was genuinely accurate and impartial. That sentiment still goes to the heart of the debate over the ABC. Media rivals and those on the right frustratedly criticise what they perceive as a lack of impartiality. Supporters generally interpret this as an ideological attack. Because it's funded from public money, the ABC has always been held to a higher standard than its commercial peers when it comes to impartiality in its broadcasting. Yet it was possible to hear partiality on the ABC on a daily basis if one went looking for it. Although ABC staff were not supposed to express personal opinions, unless in the form of analysis on the expert topic, some went further than others. The most consistent example was the left-leaning Philip Adams, whose Monday to Thursday programme, Late Night Live, had been on ABC Radio National since 1991. During discussions around politics, Adams wouldn't attempt to hide where his sympathies lay. With Late Night Live being repeated the next afternoon, the show helped set the tone of the whole network. If one were to assess the number of minutes broadcast by the ABC on TV and radio, most would be entirely uncontroversial. But the few where impartiality falls away are the ones that stick out. As Jonathan Holmes put it gently, in On Auntie. Adams is a consummate broadcaster, supported by a fine team of producers. He's getting long in the tooth for sure, but his guests are still interesting, his interviews stimulating, if you are sympathetic to his values. If you're not, he must be infuriating. It was not long before the relationship between the ABC and the new coalition government was tested. The first major skirmish came after little more than two months, 
the ABC published the results of a joint investigation with The Guardian. They used documents from the US, leaked by National Security Agency whistleblower Edward Snowden, which revealed Australia had spied on Indonesian President Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono in 2009. In January 2014, Abbott was asked about the reporting by Ray Hadley on Sydney Talk radio station 2GB. Abbott would accuse the ABC of being anti-Australian, telling Hadley, I want the ABC to be a straight news-gathering and news-reporting organisation, and a lot of people feel at the moment the ABC instinctively takes everyone's side but Australia's. He went on, I was very worried and concerned a few months back when the ABC seemed to delight in broadcasting allegations by a traitor, this gentleman Snowden, or this individual Snowden, who had betrayed his country and in the process has badly damaged other countries that are friendly with the US. Of course, the ABC didn't just report what he said, they took the lead in advertising what he said. I think it dismays Australians when the national broadcaster appears to take everyone's side but our own, and I think it is a problem. Abbott wanted the ABC to have at least some basic affection for the home team. Turnbull joined in, claiming a few days later that it was a shocking error of judgment for the ABC to cooperate with The Guardian on the story. In November 2013, a blunder inside the ABC became a gift for News Corp's The Australian. Using freedom of information laws, South Australian State MP Robert Brokenshire had asked the ABC a question about staffing levels in regional areas. The reply accidentally included a spreadsheet of ABC staff salaries. That information was then passed along to the Australian's South Australia political reporter, Sarah Martin. The Australian had been seeking the information for at least three years. It was a huge scoop for the Oz, which was delighted to reveal the salaries of the ABC's top talent. Late-line host Tony Jones was on $355,789. Mark Scott was on $678,940 plus bonuses. Lee Sales, presenter of 730, was on 280400 per year. Intriguingly, Virginia Trioli's $235,664 was well ahead of her fellow ABC News Breakfast host, Michael Rowlands, $151,006. Newsreader Juanita Phillips was on $316,454. And Quentin Dempster was on $291,505. Among radio hosts, ABC 702's Sydney Drive host, Richard Glover, topped the list on $290,000, just ahead of ABC 774's Melbourne Mornings presenter, John Fain, on $285,249. They were both ahead of Radio National breakfast host, Fran Kelly's $255,000. In context, the salaries were below those of their commercial peers, but they fed into the debate about how the broadcaster was spending its money. Any newspaper would have published the scoop. The Australian milked it for days. 
At the end of January 2014, Turnbull engaged Seven's newly retired Chief Financial Officer, Peter Lewis, to conduct an efficiency review into the operations of the ABC and SBS. As expected, it showed that plenty of expense could be saved, either for return to the budget as a saving, or to be redeployed for better use within the ABC, Turnbull later wrote in A Bigger Picture. Meanwhile, the ABC was on the verge of a huge breakthrough with the Australia network. A deal had been agreed with the state-owned Shanghai Media Group that would see the full range of its programming become available across China. The soft diplomacy looked set to gain real reach. However, it was not to be. Shortly after the election, Abbott had commissioned Tony Shepherd, President of the Business Council of Australia, to run a commission of audit to examine government spending. Abbott had been sitting on the report for several months. Among its recommendations was to save $223 million by axing the Australian network. In the May 2014 budget, the so-called emergency budget, Hockey, Turnbull and Abbott pulled the trigger on ABC savings. Turnbull's efficiency review would justify costs of 1% a year for the following four years, and the contract to run the Australian network would be cancelled despite being just one year into the 10-year contract. It led to 80 redundancies. Within a few years, the decision would look short-sighted, as Australia's relationship with its biggest trading partner deteriorated at a cost of billions of dollars in trade sanctions. Who knows whether the soft diplomacy of the Australian network might have improved understanding between the two cultures. The government's public position was that this did not amount to cuts. It was untrue. Turnbull would later bemoan in his book. The year continued in fairly chaotic fashion, I'd finalised cuts to the ABC to be funded through the efficiency measures identified by Peter Lewis, but Abbott didn't want to call them cuts and referred to them as an efficiency dividend. I wasn't going to tell lies for him, especially in the House, and so said that while the amount of the savings was similar to what a traditional efficiency dividend would achieve, this wasn't in fact an efficiency dividend, and around and around we went, as he refused to admit he'd broken a promise. Nonetheless, the ABC continued to set the news agenda with stories inconvenient for the government. In May 2014, another joint investigation, this time between Fairfax Media and the ABC's Monday evening investigative programme Four Corners, would make shocking revelations about the Commonwealth Bank's morally challenged financial planning division. The government would resist pressure for the next three years, but the banking bad Four Corners episode would eventually lead to the Banking Royal Commission, which revealed widespread misconduct within the financial services sector. But it was impossible to miss that the ABC was no longer racing ahead. On the 24th of November 2014, Scott gave a mostly downbeat address to staff at the Ultimo headquarters. We anticipate that more than 400 people, close to 10% of our ongoing workforce, face potential redundancy as we adjust our activities over coming months, he told staff. The organisation would shut down its Adelaide TV production studio and close five of its smaller regional radio outposts. There would also be a scaling back of sports broadcasts, particularly local and women's sport.
coverage of the W League, WNBL and Shoot Shield Rugby Union would be cut and the ABC would no longer air VFL, WAFL and NTFL football matches. There were programming changes too. The Friday night state-based editions of 7.30 would be replaced by a single national edition and Late Line would be shifted over to ABC News 24. In an email to staff, Scott wrote, These are challenging times, but our responsibility is to recognise the internal and external realities and confront them. There was indeed confrontation to come. That was the latest chapter of my narration of my book, Media Unmade. You can buy the book online and at all good bookstores. I hope you enjoyed it. Remember, if you want to hear all future chapters, you'll need to be a paying subscriber of Unmade. You can sign up at unmade.media. That's the URL, simply unmade.media. Once you do, it only takes a couple of clicks to add the paid-for feed to the podcast app of your choice. The book was written and recorded in northwest Tasmania on the land of the Palawa people. This podcast is produced with the enthusiastic help of Abe's Audio. For voiceovers and audio production, from corporate to commercial, go to abesaudio.com.au. I'll be back with the next chapter soon. Toodle pip.